Friends, let us listen together for the word of God from Matthew in the 14th chapter, beginning in the 13th verse. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion for them and cured their sick. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a deserted place and the hour is now late. Send the crowds away so that they might go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Jesus said to them, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. They replied, we have nothing here but five loaves and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, blessed and broke the loaves, and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And all ate and were filled, and they took up what was left over of the broken pieces, twelve baskets full. And those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. It is so beautiful, isn't it? If you are to close your eyes and imagine this scene, this is a favorite in folk artwork. One piece is on your bulletin cover. It has truly captivated our imaginations. You can imagine people in either drab earth-toned robes or brightly colored robes and headdresses gathered by the thousands, hungry and peering in wonder into baskets spilling over with food which never run empty. Few of us know the kind of hunger of ancient people wandering in the wilderness. No granola bars from the store in their pockets. But we can still dream of what this encounter with Jesus felt like. It is simple and yet rich. Like the text says, all ate and were satisfied. Everyone who was sick was healed. There is something truly filling and healing and satisfying about this story as well. It is like a little glimpse into the kingdom of heaven. This is what the kingdom looks like, isn't it? This is what the people of the kingdom do. They loll about on the grass. They revel in the presence of Jesus, who takes bread and blesses and breaks and gives it to them, just as he will do again on the night he was betrayed. And when he reveals himself risen to two on the road to Emmaus, this is the rhythm of grace. We could just meander through this passage with childlike joy, imagining this beautiful picnic of the faithful. But we aren't going to do that today. I listened to a Bible study podcast, which I appreciate so much. It is called Pulpit Fiction. 
I'm so grateful for accessible and ongoing Bible study with committed clergy. And it awakened a whole new wing of interpretation for me about this passage. And this is why the Bible is so powerful. Every time we come to it, there is something new. It is never done with us. There is always more that we can find. Truly, this is why we continue preaching on it in church after church, Sunday after Sunday. There's always more. So let's set aside that peaceful and lovely scene and back up one story in our text. As is so often the case, this one needs to be part of its larger narrative to understand what is really going on. And we will find, to our shock and dismay, that the reason Jesus, showing his full humanity as he is adrift in a boat alone by himself, it seems as though he is centering himself before the work ahead, separating himself from the desperate crowds and even his closest friends, is because he has just heard that his cousin, his companion and his friend, John the Baptist has been murdered, that he has been beheaded and his head presented on a platter at a banquet at Herod's palace. Can you imagine that scene? A very different banquet, full of riches and royal celebration, but that cherished family member and friend known throughout art history for his wild and untamed brown curls and for his unparalleled devotion to Jesus, beheaded, those curls on a platter, and his death like nothing more than a party trick. So this story takes place in the face of that agony Jesus has gone out alone to grieve, to be alone in his pain and suffering. Another message for another day could be that this one line shows the humanity of Jesus and reminds each of us to take time to be alone, to rest, to grieve, and to recenter ourselves before we try to return to mission. But the story also takes on such a new meaning in the context of this beheading of John the Baptist at a banquet contrasted with this wilderness banquet, contrasting the empire of Rome with the kingdom of God. And it transforms this charming picnic into a gathering which instead has the potential to be the site of a violent uprising, a mob in search of revenge, willing to consolidate both the followers of John the Baptist and the followers of Jesus into one army united against a common enemy. Rather than a peaceful picnic, this could be a boot camp. There is no way that the people who were gathered in the wilderness being fed by Jesus did not wonder if in fact they were about to become that army if they were about to be called on to revolt, if they were about to be asked to go beat their plowshares into swords, to take up arms and avenge the death of John the Baptist. There is no way that the author 
and the early readers of these Gospels did not sense in the unwritten lines, in what was not said, that this was a story about being on the verge of preparation for war. Imagine the systems that kept the Roman Empire in power from Egypt to England, from Northern Africa across into Western Asia. Imagine those countless Roman soldiers committed to keeping their emperor, whom they called the Son of God, in power, and all local governors representing him, in power over an impoverished and oppressed local population. Each local governor, as Herod was, was charged with keeping that fragile Pax Romana, that peace of Rome, and they had to walk a very fine line between keeping Rome happy and not letting the people rise up. So in the ancient Roman Empire, as they kept expanding and expanding, consolidating wider and vaster territories, they had to be obsessed with military might tactics and the production of weapons, the perfection of formation, supplying helmets and swords, training soldiers in open fields and transporting people and goods across their famous roads and bridges, always expanding and expanding in power. But the one thing that mattered above all else for a successful army was two things. The numbers of people you could acquire and how you could feed them. Which is why there is no way that the first people to experience this and to tell the story didn't understand this subtext. That it's not just Jesus feeds 5,000, but Jesus almost forms an army. Anyone who could gather thousands of people and feed them was a threat. They had everything they needed, including now a leader and a common cause and a direction for their anger. Just as today the murder of one in custody will lead people to protest, pouring out into the streets and demanding justice, the people who held John up as a prophet have poured out into the countryside to gather. And there was also no way they didn't realize then, looking around at one another, that they were suddenly powerful. Could they overthrow the empire? Of course not. 5,000 people couldn't do that. It wouldn't end well for them. But they could have tried. They could have at least sent their local leaders fleeing. Even in this text, Herod is a complex character. He didn't actually want to kill John the Baptist. He was almost tricked into it because he knew it would anger the followers. He was afraid to both let him live or to kill him because it could lead to an uprising and to his own fall. But Jesus didn't take the people into the wilderness to raise an army, but instead to show the world what the opposite kind of banquet from the one where Herod ruled could look like. Of course, the Prince of Peace, who will ride into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, he would never. So why does it matter that they never became an army? Why does it matter that they could have? And why, given that they didn't, should it matter at all to us today?
to read the text in this way. Well, first, I think it's really important that the meek in the Bible will inherit the earth, but to be meek in a biblical sense does not have the same meaning in English that it does in the biblical Greek. When we say meek in English, what would you imagine? A newborn baby, a field mouse, a dove, something gentle but very, very weak. This is not the biblical sense of the word meek. These are not the ones who will inherit the earth. To be meek in the biblical sense is to have a vast capacity for power, to have the strength of a tiger, to have the strength and the power of a waterfall, but to be able to harness and control that strength. Biblical meekness means power under control, strength harnessed and directed. The people in the wilderness needed to feel that power. They needed to see their great strength in numbers, the power of their collective outrage, to feel their desire for revenge and retribution, but then to follow Jesus, who leaves them healed and fed, who meets them with compassion. And it's in this that they find a way to transform those feelings, to channel them and to work in ways that don't make them look like exactly what they're fighting against. But by infiltrating the world to be different, to show compassion, to heal and feed, they had to know and see and experience that power as a collective body to be able to choose to be meek in the biblical sense. This is transformative. If the powers of evil are going to be overthrown, they cannot be overthrown with violence. And so why does it matter for us today? We are not there yet, but we are getting ready to head into another election season. But the rhetoric is already developing. And I worry about the ways we in this democracy talk about other people. We cannot transform this world into one that is more loving by speaking a language of exclusion and hate. We have already failed as soon as we try. There is a desire for purity in thought and opinion and speech, even among those who long for a more inclusive society, even among those who call ourselves progressive. And yet we see that the interests of feminists are put up against the interests of trans women that the dialogue between Jewish Americans and African Americans can become very tense and exclusionary, that people of the First Nations and refugees at the border are pitted against each other, that the needs of people we who sit here might want to call ourselves allies with across gender and race and religion leave a progressive movement fractured, searching for purity in thought and in word. We cannot help trying to include people who struggle to include one another. There is no way to pass a purity test about how to be appropriately progressive and inclusive. And we are all, no matter what our identity is or where we sit, we are all complicit in different ways in systems 
No one has been able to create this utopia where all actually are accepted. So even from the most progressive circles, you will hear takedowns of the other. You will hear speech that dehumanizes, speech that leaves no room for others to be in a process of growing. You will hear speech that quickly resorts to us versus them and eventually entertain, entertain the same kind of rhetoric which should make us squirm. Why don't you just go back to your corner? Why don't you just go back to where you came from? You can't exist near us. How then are we any different who want to speak a language of love? Watch out for it, friends. But see your power, claim your own voice, and channel it into love. Diana Butler Bass, an author and contemporary American theologian, said in a conversation she convened with readers of her book, Christianity After Religion, and she talked about these moments of awakenings. And what she described to her listeners is that the kingdom and our capacity to enact it, Jesus would say, is within us. We cannot bring the kingdom of God about. We can't make the promises of Isaiah come to fruition, but we can embody its ideals and its precepts if we live those more fully in the world. Then in some parts of the places we live, she says, they will have more resonance with what God intends for humankind. We don't create the fullness of the kingdom, but we can live it in a way that it makes a difference. She describes the kingdom as being like a pebble dropped into a pond. If you were to picture picking up a stone, you might be able to imagine using it in violence to hurl it against someone else, with words even, or with thoughts that make the other separate from you, that dehumanize. But we could also use that pebble to create something like a ripple of love and who knows how far that might extend. So what has Jesus done? He has gathered these people to process their grief at injustice together. He has healed them and he has fed them, but the last thing is the most powerful. He could then give them their marching orders, this group that could so easily be an army, but he dismisses them. They go in peace to be those pebbles dropped into so many ponds, field, fed and healed and dismissed from that field to create change meekly and humbly and gently. Then he crosses the river. He gets back in his boat. He goes to the other side. He encounters the other people who were wholly unlike the first group. He goes to the very ones who they would have said, those people are different from us. Those people are other. He goes to them and he does the same thing for them. He feeds another 4,000. He shows that there is no end to this work. So friends, you too are a person who has experienced, I hope, complete love and acceptance here. 
You too have the possibility of seeing yourself potentially as a warrior, and yet still you could be radicalized as an opponent of hate and try to respond to that in hate, but you can choose to be dismissed from this place in peace, to go into the world and change it from within to create those ripples. Is this non-resistance? Or is this the true resistance movement of the weak? Are we the true freedom fighters? Is this the real insurrection of people who have been loved, ready to go back into their communities to share that love exponentially, ready to topple that empire of scarcity and bring in a new way of abundance, unwilling to dehumanize, refusing to choose violence with word or action, insisting on feeling compassion, especially for the one you might feel called to stand against. On this Communion Sunday, come to be healed, come to be fed, come to know compassion, pause to see your power and claim it. See our power and then learn to be meek, powerful and gentle, that in that infinite power, you might choose love.